Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 5, Episode 5. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we will be replaying a recent webinar entitled Legal Considerations When Selling a Franchise Company. It will be a three-way discussion with Tom Ice, Principal at Gray Ice Law Firm, along with Derek Ball and Rick Ormsby at Unbridled Capital. Among other things, we will discuss how to prepare in advance of a sale, what legal risks are involved, key points in negotiating an LOI, indemnity clauses for purchase agreements, legal gotchas, examples of post-closing risks, franchise approval considerations, legal due diligence, and timing. Now, legal discussions might be a bit dry, but this episode is jam-packed with information. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Deliver to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, welcome everybody. We're just kind of just shooting the breeze here as we're getting we're getting ready to, to start webinar. We're excited to be here today. I just give a couple of quick updates that I usually do on these on these webinars. First of all, shout out to all you podcast listeners. And I, I'm really thankful that you're listening on podcast. The podcast is growing like a weed, and so I'm thankful that you're going to be listening to this. Always feel free to reach out along the way to us at Unbridled Capital. You know how to reach me, uh, Rick Ormsby. You know Derek works for Unbridled, and we're excited to have Tom Ice here today. I think a couple of a couple of quick things I'd say. General business update: market continues to be a little bit slow. Started to see a little bit of a pickup in the last couple of months, at least from phone calls for clients wanting to either sell or refinance their business. But most of them. The people that would be sellers, uh, whether they're small, medium, or large scale, you know, operators or franchisees, or a lot of them are exploring the idea of pursuing a, a strategy towards the end of the year, or maybe in Q3 when they have a better trailing 12 month PL. We had a bad 2022. Most franchisees did. You know, top line might have looked good, but profitability hurt was was hurt a little bit. So in the first and second quarters of this year, most folks are starting to see some meaningful changes in a positive direction with mitigating commodities and you know, increasing sales, some of which are due to pricing, menu pricing, some of which are due to new promotions and things. So I think it'll mean that the the back half of the year and certainly at the beginning of 2024 will be a uh, will be a, a busy time. Now it's a little bit slow and quiet. The banking situation's gotten a little more difficult. And so for those of you who are listening, you know, bankers, and you've heard me say this if you listened and watched before, bankers will be looking usually, and so do CPAs, they usually look three to six months, but typically three months in arrears. So they're going to form their opinions, bad or worse, on something that's happened three to six months ago. So that meant that they were a little slow to adjust, bankers were, when we went through 2022. And what they're probably doing now is they're adjusting too hard for 2023 because we see the business conditions improving a little bit, right? But because of higher interest rates and because they're looking in rears a little bit more, they're seeing the third and fourth quarters of 2022 and they're seeing numbers that don't look good. So we're going to see some uh, continued tightness, I think, from the banking industry here for the next six months, maybe more. Who the heck knows? You know, we're all guessing here. But I would like to stop rambling and we'll start here. We're going to start. We're, we're, we're honored to have Tom Ice here today. Tom has got a variety of skills and backgrounds. He used to be on the corporate council at Steak and Shake. So that, that's a, a place where he started his young law career. 
He's done dozens of M&A deals with, with us, with the Unbridled Capital team across probably a dozen or maybe 10 or so brands. And uh, he's got several individual and personal clients that are kind of famous, well-known people in, in this great industry of ours known as franchising. So he's got a depth of experience and he works for Gray Ice. So Gray Ice, I was on a cruise with my family over Thanksgiving and it was the karaoke night. And guess what I sang, Tom? With the mic in my hand. Ice Ice Baby. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I And I got up there sober. I'll, I'll have you say, I'll, I'll have you know. And the lady who was like, you know, doing the, you know, getting all the songs programs, she said, you're the first person who's ever attempted Ice Ice Baby on this cruise ship. And I said, really? This cruise ship's got to be 40 years old. So, man, I, I rocked Ice Ice Baby. About the third verse, though, kind of start losing wind. I mean, because it goes so fast and it's pretty, you know, you know, you got to, you got to be in shape. So <laughs> we're honored to have you here. I lived that song for a number of years. So we're, I'm <laughs> sure. I remember. I'm sure. I'm sure. But we're honored to have you. Today, we're going to be talking, just kind of throwing back some concepts on what to think about from a legal perspective when you go through an M&A deal. Let's start then. So the first one is Several years out from a sale, and Derek Ball's here with us, and he's an attorney too, he, you know, uh, a licensed attorney, doesn't practice law on behalf of our clients officially, of course, but uh, so he can pitch in with some legal ideas here too. Tom, what do you think? What should we do, be doing if we are a buyer or let's, in this case, probably a seller for this question, several years out from a sale? Each company, when you form it and while you're operating, you need to keep in mind that it's likely going to be sold at some point. Almost all of my clients go through some either a merger sale or some sort of transition. So every company needs to be set up in that way and be mindful and organized in a way that makes it easier to do that. So you work with your accountants, your attorneys and everything to set up an organized and hopefully simple structure that will enable a transaction to go through more smoothly. So I've had clients who had one client at 43 restaurants with 43 different companies, about 35 to 40 different ownership structures in those. So selling it was an absolute nightmare because they never went through the process of trying to consolidate that. So we had to do 43 different meetings, company meetings to approve a sale and go through all the various workings and that. And that's an extreme example, but it's things such as that, organizing your documents, making sure that your leases, everything to the point to the extent that it can be digitally stored, store them on uh, your computer in an organized fashion. So if you have multiple units, it's uh, diligence you can provide to people. It's also making sure your employment records and the other litigation is structured to the point where it makes it easy. Other than that, I mean, it really boils down to just organization and a good office manager or somebody that can do this while because most of our clients, as you know, Rick, are operators. They're not office folk. Getting people involved that can make your life easier at the end of the day, not only from a, in a sales standpoint, just on a day-to-day basis. Is that after, as restaurants' numbers grow, administrative issues grow, and organization is the key to success there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one about the about the different companies. I've I've experienced this too. I used to own some real estate, and we had them pulling different LLCs, and we had different loans against them. And 
And just living amongst that mire can be very, very difficult, can't it? So I can imagine when you get on the back end of selling like a 50-unit business that has 50 different entities, and some of these entities might have real estate separated from business within the actual unit themselves. So now we're talking 75 to 100 different entities. First of all, it's not a trend we see a whole lot anymore, right? But there's a lot of legacy operators who still incorporate that way. But the trend clearly in today's world is to have like one operating company, maybe one company for real estate and to buy more insurance, right? Is yeah, that kind of the way? From standpoint, I think it makes most sense. Most of our really large clients, they may set up by region if they are anticipating a sale of a particular region. So they may split up restaurants in that fashion. They're going to be consolidated within a handful of companies and not on a site-by-site basis. It just becomes an administrative nightmare. And I was on the phone with a client earlier today who was lamenting the fact that he had that many companies because of all the employment and other issues that that can materialize. And he's constantly having to answer audits and and other things. And said this it made se- it seemed like it made sense when we did this in the '90s, but now that I'm having to deal with another day to day basis, especially since regulations and we've expanded our regulations, they haven't got smaller. And so just the administrative hassle of taking care of that many companies is, becomes unreal. Derek, how many times do you think have we seen? I mean, we we kind of have always specialized in the mid to uh, larger scale independent operator, first or second generation. So those folks, by by kind of definition, have kind of brought something along with their organizational structure over the last 20 or 30 years. Oftentimes, once you got it fixed, you just don't screw with it, right? Because it's a pain. And if you're like me, sitting here operating a company, it's like you don't have time to deal with it all. So how many of our clients, though, come to us with C-corporations? And, and then what's your, what, what do we, out of every 100, how many do you think we see that, and same with you, Tom, that have C-corporations? And then it takes, it's a five-year window of switching from a C-corporation to an S-corporation to avoid double taxation in the sale. It's still somewhat common, right? Right. No, I don't, we don't see it a whole lot. We see what Tom was just talking about. I'd say one out of every seven or eight deals, it's just an estimate where you've got a, a seller who has every single one of their stores in a different entity. And like Tom said, it ends up being a, a bit of, it can be a, a bit of a nightmare, especially if the organization's not there. From a C-Port perspective, honestly, I bet it's one out of every 20, one out of every 20 of our clients. I probably get one a year. Wish I had known. If you're a C-Corp and you're listening right now and you have any interest in ever selling your company, even if you don't have interest in selling your company, go talk to an attorney and a CPA to, Potentially get that fixed because, like Rick said, it takes five years. You said if you change it from C corp and sell it in three years, the tax man's going to come back and get you anyway. So go ahead and do it. You don't see it much anymore. Tom can probably elaborate more, but I I don't think there's really many advantages like there used to be a long time ago to having a C corp to begin with. So yeah, if you're listening and you have a C corp, I'd recommend going ahead and changing it. Don't get to a sale and then regret not having done it five years ago. You're going to save yourself a lot of money if you do it. Yeah, most of our support clients are legacy C corps. Most of them are. I, you know, we form a lot of businesses too. I cannot tell you the last time I formed a C corp. I don't remember that. That's been that's not long ago. I have no idea. Uh, we did get a question in on a related thing though. Does it said that do most restaurant companies also set up a separate entity for GNA? In my experience, those who set up a management company for GNA are the entities that have multiple restaurant one, two, three, four, all in separate entities. So they have a management company that handles either a holding company or a management company that handles those operating entities. 
But if there's one entity involved that's all, that is the operating entity, that doesn't, in my experience, does not normally have a management company associated with it, unless it's managing multiple brands within a same company structure. So if you own, let's say, a Taco Bell and a Pizza Hut company separately, you might have a management company on top. You may have Taco Bell LLC, you may have Pizza Hut LLC, and then you might have like holding company or management company LLC on top of it. Is that what, you, is that yeah, what you're saying? That being on top, it could be to the side, an affiliate that takes care of the management and they'll pay a percentage or some sort of ongoing fee to take mm-hmm. care of it. But if you've got one concept that doesn't cross-pollinate I, and you don't have multiple entities within that concept, I rarely see it. Usually within a lending scenario, you're going to have the, the lenders digging in and cross-collateralizing the two entities, right? So they're going to look as one. So what's the risk mitigation purpose of having this separate entity either on top as a GNA or over on the side? What, is there any risk benefit from it? It's just managing managing the business more effectively and consolidating the GNA. And that way you've got one entity that you're processing all those expenses through. Okay, well, let's move on to, I've got like nine questions here. We're on question number two, and I'm kind of eyeballing these questions. So general considerations when selling. So we chatted about this. We did a little practice session, you know, yesterday. And so what say you guys, what are some things that listeners should be thinking about as general considerations before they sell? Yeah, this isn't really as much legal in nature, but, you know, the first one is just have your front end expectations set properly. You know, the biggest risk to a deal is you get out there and, you get promised the moon and uh, they can't quite get out of the atmosphere. And uh, now you've got your deal out there, but it's not just from a price perspective. You know, if you go into it, assuming you're not going to personally guarantee an APA, you're probably going to be disappointed. We've seen that a handful of times. Maybe buyer attorney just misses it. I've seen that once before too, but you know, personal guarantee on the APA Certain indemnity terms, rips and warranties, stuff like that, which we'll get into later in this in this webinar. But just having your front end expectations set properly from a from a financial and legal perspective, or else you're going to be really disappointed and maybe upset, potentially blowing up the deal. You know, later on, you don't want to waste all that time, money, and energy to not know what you're in for. I guess is the best way to say it. What what I what I like to tell people is this: like if you're back in, I've said this before, I think back in maybe it was 2006. I can't remember the year, but I was sitting in a hotel and I actually signed a deal on a napkin uh, with a franchisee. You know, I actually did. We put out a napkin and just. I mean, I was like, okay, that happened. It happened a lot. Basically, here's the deal: sign the napkin. There's the stores are yours, and it wasn't a small business either. This was a big business. But in today's world where we're expecting big prices, professional managers, like big lending platforms and all kinds of stuff, private equity, family office groups and sophisticated franchisees who are paying like real multiples and real prices, not your three and four times EBITDA from your buddy franchising next door, but but like a real business, it comes with some hair on it. I mean, it always will. Like you can't expect to get 30% more for your business and then have an easy, easy deal. That's not how it works. These large franchisees and large firms I have professional CPAs and attorneys, right, Tom? And so uh, yeah, and it's um, a lot of my, we are called counselors for a reason. A lot of our jobs are kind of walking people through not only the nuts and bolts of a transaction, but what that kind of emotional roller coaster they can go through. I represent, or I, I come from a business, uh, a family that's small business family. A lot of my family members are own their own businesses. And I deal with people within our industry quite a bit who are multiple generation franchise owners. 
and it's you know mom or dad or grandma or grandpa uh, were the people who started it and it is a very big deal to make that decision to move on from that which is a legacy product or and it's some there was a, a franchisee that we we worked on together who quite literally said he was frying chicken in his in his grandfather's kitchen five years old we remember going in there and he was 63 in the cellar being committed to that and understanding the process is different than it used to be and that it is not nearly as kind of person to person it's usually a little more person to entity now twice and so understanding it might be a little colder than your parents or grandparents have went through but at the end of the day most people come out of these pretty happy. I think that was a point you made yesterday that was interesting is that uh, you have yet to see someone even through all the difficulty of the process and it is a process hundreds of hours it's a lot of it's a lot of work it's uh you know and it's also emotionally draining because like you say it's something that's a legacy for you but but you've said that basically no one has regretted it that you've know of that you've worked with over all these years right 1999 and I stay in touch with a good chunk of the people I've represented and I've yet to run across sellers or more. Isn't that funny? That's funny. What does that tell you, huh? Well, it's well, interesting. They worked hard. They built something they're proud of, it, but they moved on to the next phase of their life. Yeah. It's hard to let go, though. You know, think about it, though. Think about, like, you go to college for four years, let's just say, and you have the loyalty to your friends and the sports teams that you went to college to support, right? Like, that stays with you your whole life with a lot of furor and, and excitement. You join, I mean, like go to the military and you go off to fight for four years. And then like you see these guys and, and girls now, I guess, too. But, you know, I think back to the World War II generation and they're like still going to like annual reunions for the next like 60 years of their lives. So you just think about like what a really meaningful four year, three year, two year experience can have in terms of an impact on someone's life. But now think about the dude who started at five years old frying chicken in the back of the house, and now he's 63. That's 58 years of all he knows. So it's a real raw point. Well, let's get into some more nuts and bolts. I mean, we would make a plug and say that you need a strong M&A team. I mean, for sure, right? Like our team, you know, usually has around a 90% closure rate of the deals we take. And the reason why we do it is because we we treat you like you'd be our family, but we give you advice that we think is going to be true and accurate. You know, in this industry, it's rife with people who are going to try to overpromise to get an assignment, hoping that they can grind you down when the price or the terms are worse than what were initially kind of forecasted. It's no different than a real estate agent who might, you know, tell you that your house is worth a million dollars or might agree with you when you say, could we get a million when really it's only worth 850,000. So, I mean, expectations are important, but let's get into uh, the first Let's talk about negotiating a letter of intent. And then after that, we want to talk about some key elements of a purchase agreement. And I want to spend a, like quite a bit of time here because these are areas that 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 become important. So when what are some key terms and considerations you guys might might point out when you're negotiating a letter of intent, which would be the initial document that kind of defines general parameters in a deal between a buyer and seller? Well, before we get into the actual nits, I, I, some people treat letters of intent as a as an opportunity to negotiate further after they're executed and there are cases when letters of intent may be wrong and practical there may be things you get into a deal and you have to kind of deviate from them but you can really destroy the trust in a relationship if you execute a letter of intent and then pivot from it pretty quickly so while they're non-binding in nature they should be taken very seriously 
uh, if you want to get a deal done, then I, I'm working with people and making sure they're accurate was important. And I go, Darren, and that differs a little bit from maybe other industries. And obviously, I assume everybody on this on this call is is a restaurant person. But other industries, you might submit an LOI, get to do three months of diligence, and then sign an APA and close. And the LOI is just a real high level initial term sheet. In this industry, and this is at least how we look at it. LOIs are pretty firm, like short of something coming up during the deal. You know, if you put in a price for $50 million and EBITDA checks out and your diligence checks out that 50 million, that's the number. It's not going to be 45 after you dig in a little bit more on the brand in two months and figure out you don't like the brand as much as you thought. So we see that a lot with, with people getting into the restaurant industry that come from other industries. Really, it's not a I don't even think of it as a dishonesty thing. It's just a, that's what you're used to. So I try not to take it too hard on people. But for people coming into this industry, if you put in that price, if EBITDA changes 10%, obviously your price is going to change. You know, the LOI is, is like Tom said, non-binding, but take it seriously. And if you put it in and then retrade it, or in our opinion, no reason, it's going to damage your your reputation as a buyer pretty pretty strong. Let me expand on that a little bit. It's a great point. I mean, you know, specifically for anyone who's listening here, and a lot of people, podcast listeners here, are going to be financial type of buyers, like people in New York City with fancy shoes and no socks on. You know what I mean? <laughs> Those type of folks with Ivy League educations, they're going to be used to the type of you know two levels of diligence. The first level of diligence that they perform on the company is very very basic, and they put in an LOI. Right? The LOI has a range on it. And then they go through a deeper diligence period, and then they submit a final LOI. And the final LOI is going to be different than the initial LOI and likely 10% less in price. And then that's like 30 days in between the two. And, and look, that's the way a lot of large institutional-backed companies you know, sell. But you need to know that against strategic buyers in this space, that's not the way it works. They already know the business, so they're going to make an offer. Your competition to buy an asset is going to make an offer on a business and their offer is going to be more like what we're talking about here. It's going to basically stand. So in the eyes of most of these sellers, especially in a market that favors strategics now, not financial buyers as much for the because it's hard to, to borrow and the financial buyers are a little more skittish on the interest rate environment right now. You just need to know that you've got to conform when you're competing against strategics for a seller's business. It's a critical point, I think. So let's talk about some of the points of an LOI, though, Tom. What do you think? I mean, what do you what do you point out, and how do you think about it? I, I like to see how expenses are going to be divided, if that can be decided on the front end. Uh, I like to look on timing. If there are any specific issues, the parties know they're going to have to address, such as remodels or restaurants under construction or any other issues, condemnation. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, so addressing those things on the front end, so we don't get too much in the muck on the purchase agreements, you know, if there's going to be financing needs, what's the reasonable expectation for that? But over and above that, I don't like to try to negotiate reps and warranties and other things in the LOI. I think it bogs down the process that the language is naturally going to change when we get to the APA process. I'd rather just let that go and we'll deal with that in a, in a later time. But I'm sure you, do, you actually do more LOIs than I do. Uh, you may have some other things, but that's those are the key things I look for. We have kind of two stages. So we have our first, most of our deals, not all of them, 
But most of our deals go into kind of a second round process. And we don't run a big, long, two, three month long second round process. It's usually just a couple of weeks. And at, at that point where you have, say, three or four you know, bidders in the second round, that's where we're going to ask for a little bit more detail. What's your escrow in the APA going to be? How long is it going to hold for, you know, certain indemnity provisions like that? In that second round process, we're going to ask for maybe a little bit more detail in your banking situation. Obviously, if someone comes in saying they're going to get something 95% financed, I want to know that before we sign an LOI. So obviously, that's pretty critical from a business perspective. You know, in that second round process, if you haven't already done it in the first round, we're, we're generally looking for franchise or consent. It's not going to be formal consent, but we're just looking for red flags. If we call the franchise or and they say, heck no, we're never going to let that person buy that business. Well, that's a problem. We, we try and knock that out in the LOI round. It might not necessarily be included in your LOI, but it's going to be at that phase. And then obviously, if we have updated P&Ls, you know, if we're on the market for four weeks, and then we go to a second round process, we're probably going to have another period of P&Ls and we like to get those updated for good or bad. We like to have the most updated numbers at the signing of the LOI. If they're good P&Ls for obvious reasons, maybe the price comes up. If they're bad, buyers should know that now before getting skittish later. So at a high level, though, I agree with Tom. We, we try to keep the LOI pretty high level. I don't want to spend two weeks negotiating it. We're going to spend enough time negotiating the APA. So that's kind of how we view it. Yeah, at this stage, I'd just add about with financial buyers listening in here. And I say this, I've said this to all blue in the face. If you're coming into this industry and looking at potentially buying a business in the franchise space, you know, do the diligence over a six-month period of taking the entire universe of deals and locations and brands and shrink it down into two or three key brands in a certain geography. And then go to those brands and, and call their franchise sales teams and get a preliminary approval, you know, submit a net worth spreadsheet and a background check so that when you make an offer on these businesses, because you heard Derek say during a second round process, we're going to call the franchisor, right? And say, hey, is Joe Blow anyone you'd approve or disapprove? What if uh, whatever corporate entity says, we've never heard of them. So that's a piece that that I think is a little bit understated that you want to get out in front of it when you submit an LOI, that you're just not some random name that, that has no affiliation with corporate. It is true that these corporate entities, these franchisors are getting more and more heavy handed. Their hands used to be like butter, or maybe, maybe a little bit like soft wood, but now they're like concrete. So, you know, they have a big say in what happens. Let's go to a couple of questions. Yeah, John, I was going to, John, Asked a question as a buyer or seller, is it an advantage to have your lawyers do the first draft of the purchase agreement or should you try and get the other side to do it? The way this is just how I personally view it, buyers usually, I would say, just market would be buyers have the choice whether to do it or not. Generally speaking, I think going ahead and doing it is probably your best interest. But in general, if you put forth a crazy APA, it's going to get redlined. I mean, my, my biggest advice to people is. The APA is going to get dwindled down in the end to pretty similar deal to deal. I mean, there's not going to be an APA that is just so one-sided at signing. I've had a couple that are more one-sided than I want, but lead with something. If you don't want to lead at the 50-yard line for on a football field, lead at the 40. If you lead at the one, it literally, it's going to elongate the deal by a month or more. If you have a fair APA to start, it should take two to three weeks. That includes doing the schedules and you should be done. If you start at the one yard line, 
it's going to take two months. I've had APAs take three to four months before because they were so one-sided at the start. So my biggest recommendation is just lead somewhere toward the middle. You you can favor it a little bit toward your your side. That's fine. That's understandable. But don't start at the one yard line because it's just going to go. You're adding six red lines and and ten phone calls. And by the way, no offense to Tom, a crap ton of money from an attorney. I'm free. I don't get paid by the hour. Neither does Rick. But you're going to pay Tom by the hour or whoever your attorney is. So you lead at the one yard line, and you're going to spend another twenty five grand on an APA as well to well, get probably a better result. Well, yeah, that's that's my point. My point is this: if you start off at the one yard line, you ain't going to be getting a touch. How many how many football teams you see starting at the one yard line score a touchdown? You know what I mean? Very rarely, right? They're usually punting from the thirty yard line, right? If you start at the forty yard line, well, heck, you're only thirty yards away from a field goal. You know, using the old sports analogy. So, I mean, I see this Tom blue in the face on the front end. Like you get a client that's like, oh, if it's worth twenty five million, let's price it at thirty million. You know, and I'm like, no, a lot of a lot of our processes don't don't have a price in them, right? But if if it did, if you start at 30 million when it's worth 25 million, you're probably going to get 25 and a half million. If you start at 27 million when it's 25 million, you might get 26 million, and you're going to do better. Does that make sense? It's counterintuitive to how people think. It's the same thing when negotiating a purchase agreement. And don't be fooled if you're hiring like unbridled capital. We're not attorneys. We don't play attorneys on your deal. But guess how many deals we've closed hundreds. Do we know like our last 30 deals, exactly what's happened from indemnities and escrows and deposits and guarantees and all this stuff? Well, of course we do. So we know what's market. And Tom works on a lot of our assignments. I mean, clearly he knows what's market. He does it all day long every day. So don't start at one yard line. There's something softer to it too. And people kind of overlook it when they're looking at the nuts and bolts of these deals. It's goodwill. When you lead with a one yard line APA, you piss that seller off. I can deal with it. I deal with it all the time. That's my job. But you're going to piss that seller off like no else. And it's not going to do well for you. They're going to be mad. They're going to think you're trying to screw them. And they're going to be looking over their shoulder the rest of the deal and, and almost scared of you. But that's not a good thing. That's that's a bad thing. And so goodwill in these deals goes a long way. And just starting with something fair goes a long way, especially with these sellers, like we talked about, have maybe owned these stores 58 years. They're not financial guys. They're out there cooking chicken or making tacos, and they just want to retire. They don't want someone on the other side that they think is trying to screw them all the time. So the goodwill piece, I think, is maybe even more important than the cost or the time or anything like that, because goodwill in a deal is is probably the single most important thing to getting it done. Well, yeah, to go back to an earlier point, when you're building your team, you need to engage people. And it doesn't matter if it's in the restaurant industry, in the tech industry, if you're buying planes, whatever you may be doing, hiring the right people to do that. I'm not going to pretend to be a benefits lawyer. I know enough to work through documents such as these, and I've got people I can refer to if I, I need something that's high or high level. I, I know this industry, I feel like, pretty well. But if you hire people that don't and are maybe more used to something else, it's harder for them to manage expectations and to really understand how these things go from cradle to grave. Whether it's accountants, it doesn't matter. Whatever professionals you're hiring, it's people like our driver. You have to hire people who know what to do. No, that's a great point. Thank you. Does anyone know the answer to this question asked? Can franchisees take advantage of QSBS designation? So long as it's not yes. 
So as long as they're not a small business stock designation, you can't do it if you're simple. Okay. Okay. No other limitations that you know of? I mean, is there any kind of limitation? That gets into more the the taxation side that I don't do, but I know you can't do it if you're a C-Corp. Others are are eligible. Okay, cool. Well, one thing I would just say before we move on from the LOI to the APA is the standstill provision. So some LOIs have standstill provisions in them, some don't. But uh, 30 to 60 day standstill provision being binding potentially is not a surprise if you're a seller or a buyer issue, you know, passing an LOI back and forth. You want to know if you're, especially if you're in a heavily banked process, like an you know, advisor is, is finding multiple offers, it's not uncommon nor unreasonable to ask once all the dust is settled for a little bit of time to get to an APA. And, and that's, a, I guess, the next point, which is what are the key elements of a purchase agreement? First, the first thing, and I think we get this off the board pretty quickly, stock versus asset sale. Just real quick comments on on that. Actually, I lied yesterday. I've done two in the last <laughs> 15 years. I only remembered one yesterday. Uh, stock deals are very rare in this industry. You're normally, because stock deals, you inherit the liability of the predecessor. You have to build the de- deal differently. You don't want the tax exposure. You don't want the employment exposure. You want a clear line of demarcation. That uh, in asset deals, for the most part, there's some, some successor liability issues with asset deals, but you're more able to, to put that line in the sand and say, we're just going to buy the assets and move on. Because as you know, most of the time, the buyers don't take the contracts of the seller. They have their own, their own deals, usually, especially institutional buyers. If you took the stock, you'd be accepting all of the contracts and everything else, unless you go through diligence and try to peel that onion. And that can be difficult. So just usually it's an asset. Usually it's an asset transaction. I guess some unbridled has done zero stock deals. Now I don't know if Rick Gifford did one before unbridled, but unbridled has done zero. So one or two, one or two maybe, one or two, but very very uncommon. And, and for all those reasons, right? Liability, you accept the liability. The big and maybe perhaps the bigger one because you can probably hedge the liability through documents, right? But it's the the big one's going to be the tax, right? You can't step up the basis in the assets. Taxes suck, so you know you don't want to pay as you know pay as little as you legally have to. You can you can talk about some of the other items in indemnification. You can have oh, a, yeah. have a stock sale be deemed to be an asset sale for tax purposes, but uh, again, okay, it's the liability. I'm sorry, you just don't want to go through the the rigmarole of getting through all of that. Yeah, no, that's good. Okay, you can designate a stock sale as an asset sale for taxation purposes. Is that what you said? Three thirty eight age. Yeah, well, there you go. Okay. Well, you know, we haven't had to personally deal with that a whole lot, but but that's cool. It almost never makes sense. It's mm. you know, the only reason I'm familiar with it is because it does happen from time to time. It, it almost, and that's not peculiar to restaurants. It's stock deals were much more prevalent when I was younger than they are. Very, very weak. Well, let's talk a little bit about like some of these seller indemnification items. This always gets a lot of attention. You know, these seven or eight bullet points, you're in the middle of a deal. You're a busy person running a busy life and you're selling your company. And then you get hit with these documents that have all these funky words in them that we all talk about over and over again. So I guess we things like personal guarantee, dollar caps. Listen to this. It's I mean, I sound like I'm talking Swahili here. Time limits, escrow, hold back amounts and time, schedules, reps and warranties, non-solicit, non-compete contracts, blah, 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 blah. What, what, what do you think, guys? Let's go through them quickly and talk about them. So most of our selling clients are selling the entirety of their business, uh, or at least that segment of the business, which means there's not going to be a legacy or a remnant entity of the capital. 
So more often than not, but not always, depending on the deal, the owners of that business, shareholders, members, or whatever, are going to guarantee or stand behind the reps and warranties and other covenants of that seller. That can be a bit of a shock for people because you're talking about a deal that's worth 30, 40, 50, 100 million. And they're they're being asked to personally guarantee that. You got to kind of walk through that process. And just because there's no company left to indemnify, then some person or other entity needs to stand behind it. And it's almost always the individuals in in the small business setting. If there is a surviving entity, which does happen from time to time, then yeah, we can we can sometimes get away from that. Or if it's a large, a large, if it's a seller, there's a bunch of them, and you may have a a, a related entity that would guarantee it just to get the personal guarantee out of it. But ordinarily, it's going to be an individual. Makes sense to me, right? So if you have a hundred stores and uh, you have no nothing, you you own nothing else, and you sell all hundred stores, and you dissolve the companies, and you move to Tahiti and change your name, that's a problem for a buyer, right? If you have 100 stores and you sell 20 of them in a market to somebody, you're not as much of a flight risk, so to speak, right? Your yeah. entity stays around. So the personal guarantee might not be as important. I mean, so some other things. Tell, let's talk about some other things. What, what else do you see? in the, uh, well, the next thing we have on our little list here is the, is the cap. Ordinarily, there's a limitation of liability in the agreements. Now, that can fluctuate both in percentage of the purchase price and what you're actually, what the cap actually applies to. I can get a little bit in the weeds, but we have the concept of representations and warranties and it's a separate concept, although somewhat related of covenants and other pre-closing liabilities. The cap ordinarily applies only to the representations and warranties. Now you can sometimes negotiate covenants into that. And there's another flip side to this that I'll talk about in a second. But the so and it's only a limited number of the representations and warranties. Is usually you're going to have fundamental representations and warranties to which no cap applies, such as taxes, title that you actually own what you're selling, that kind of thing. So there, so that can be kind of scary for people when there are big numbers associated with these purchase agreements. But the reason those things are fundamental or there aren't caps is because of if they've proven to be wrong, it completely undermines what the deal was intended to be in the first place. So if you didn't own what you're selling, there shouldn't be a cap on it. If that is a crack in the wall that you didn't disclose, maybe there should be a cap on it. Let's use a person, an example of some kind, Tom, even if it's a made up example. So to track through like business sales for $100 million, cap is what goes wrong that the cap cover? I mean, like, you know, let's, let's preface it real quick. I've personally not been on a deal where I've been on very few deals where sellers have been dinged for a dollar, by the way. And I've certainly never been on a deal where the cap was in play. So just for all you people listening, I mean, the cap, think about it this way. Like if you've got 20 stores that you're selling and the cap is, let's just say, 20% of the purchase price. And we're talking non-fundamental reps. Let's say it's 20% of the purchase price. I mean, you'd have to have like four of your stores collapse into the ground probably to even hit that cap, by the way. The risk of even going over it is very minute. It's one of these that gets negotiated on every APA and it pretty much never ends up applying. Literally, it's a 0% apply, uh, apply rate on deals that I've personally done. 
But it's usually in the, I've seen it as high as 30%. I've seen it as low as 10. I've seen some people try and push for no cap on the non-fundamental reps. I think I've seen it agreed to in one deal. I wouldn't call it market. 10 to 30% is probably market. I think 20 is usually what I mostly see, the plurality of what I see anyway. Like Tom said, if it's fundamental, it's it's not going to have a cap or it's going to be capped at the purchase price. I've seen both of those. And I can't tell you off the top of my head, which is more prevalent because again, I don't think it's very important by the way. I mean, it's important, but it's, you have to be running your, this goes back to what Tom talked about earlier. For that to apply ever, you've got to really be running your business with your head in the sand. If you run your company well, you stay organized, you know your stores, don't stick your head in the sand and you'll be able to sleep. Go ahead, Tom. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. To elaborate on that a bit, I have been involved in a few allegations post-closing. I've never had a client had to pay. I did have one uh, tax issue that came up that was kind of outside the party's control. No allegation of wrongdoing whatsoever. I don't really need to get into it, but that that's the only one where somebody's actually been out of pocket. But that was only because of a post-closing adjustment that was made. But again, no, no bad blood at all. It's just... He had to pay it. What normally mitigates anything that's going to be paid in these is because of the diligence that the sellers do on the front end, working with unbridled and their counsel and whatever to make sure that their everything's in order, in a financially or else otherwise. And then the the buyers are doing diligence. So unless the seller is stuck their head in the sand and the buyer hasn't bothered to look at the assets they're buying then usually uh, the, the risk of there being an actual post-closing problem is pretty low. Again, it's only been a handful of them that I've ever worked on. So that's a pretty good track record. You know, I did have one a long time ago where I was involved in one that was actually dishonest. But that's very uncommon, not something I would even concern myself about on, on a day-to-day basis. Well, and I think also, though, that it probably happens more than we realize, but I know you establish your practice this way, Tom, and we certainly do it unbridled. We try to represent like the highest quality clients. You know, I'll turn down three or four clients for every client we accept, either because of valuation expectations, not a right fit, or we hear something along the way that leads us to believe that there could be trouble with the in some way. You know what I mean? And so we're just life's too short, you know? For the, the the people that are listening in when you're when you're interviewing, because I would encourage you to interview multiple professionals and making sure that you're comfortable with with the person that you are or entity that you would seek to engage you. And likewise, when I'm talking with someone, it's not just them interviewing me; it's the other way around too. Mm-hmm. It's got to be fit. If not, it, it can be pretty toxic for both parties. Yeah, yeah, really well said. Really well said. Let's uh, we're 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 cruising through here. Uh, what do we want to talk about? Time limits and escrow holdbacks and amounts and times. So quickly want to hit those, Tom, and then Derek, I if you have any holdbacks. Usually you're looking at a portion of the purchase price that will be held back to, to cover the liabilities we just discussed. Can be it's just, can be a sliding scale depending on the, the larger the dollar amount, the lower the percentage, because it's not usually something we have to take a huge amount of chunk of. I'm thinking as low as two or three percent, then as high as seven or eight. I don't really want to go to 10. The highest I ever see is 10, which I always push back on. It, it just not, it's not typically very necessary to have that much. Heck, I did five or six deals last year with zero. 
zero holdback. So market is a flexible term probably here, but I would say anywhere from two to 8% is market. As a buyer, if you're looking to make yourself look a little bit more attractive to a seller, I would go with the low end. I mean, if you think the seller is going to escape, like Rick said, to Tahiti and change his name and and take all the money, then then maybe you and the business is a little risky. Maybe you're getting into a little bit of your initial diligence and you got some some heebie-jeebies in your stomach and you don't know what's what's real and what's not. Maybe you push for a little bit higher amount. But if you're buying a, a well-run well-organized professional company, the risk of needing more, more of that is, is, is low. Some people just blindly say, I want 10% and I'm going to demand it no matter what. That usually doesn't go over very well with sellers. So I would just recommend being a little flexible based on the actual seller and the deal if you're able to, to get that insight. In terms of time, I see anywhere from 12 to 18 months. If it's if it's paid out at 12 months, I usually see it paid 100% at 12. I sometimes see 18 months where half of it's paid at 9, you know, if no claims have been made and the other half the other half at 18. I would say that those two options are are the vast majority of the deals that I see and there are exceptions of course. The next one is schedules and this is one that just always gets shoved to the back burner. Schedules take a lot of time. If you're organized, it takes a lot less time. But schedules are effectively half of the buyer's diligence, really, to get put into the the back or the schedules to the APA. Don't push those off. That might take you 30 days to gather that information. As soon as you get the first draft of the APA, start working on them or else it's just going to delay the deal. How many schedules we got here? I mean, what are we talking about? Anywhere from 5 to 10 to 40. I think 40 is the record I've seen. 40? What the, what the heck we got on? I mean, what are we putting on a schedule with? You got 40 of them. Like what our birthdays and our you know wedding dates? I mean, what is it? It's anything you could think of. But effectively, don't as a seller, schedules are annoying to put together, but they actually protect you. It allows you to disclose things that a buyer might otherwise potentially not like, but you disclose it in the APA, the buyer has a chance to review it and they can object if they want to. But as a seller, don't under-disclose on your schedules. I would recommend over-disclosing because if you- Who's bird-dogging these schedules? You later. Who's bird-dogging these schedules? I Man, this sounds challenging for someone who's operating a business. Uh, Is this get the attorneys. Uh, we'll work with you guys, we'll work with the client, work with the accountants. It's a team effort. We'll put the drafts together. Uh, sometimes Derek will uh, do us a solid and take a crack at the first little, the first salvo, and then we take it from there. But it is your get out of jail free card. It is the thing that gives you the coverage that you need. Sometimes you got to disclose things. There was an environmental, very common when you've got multiple units, there's an environmental issue of one or two of them that you dealt with. Usually you've got some clearance letter or something else that, or there's a monitoring well or something else on the property. Uh, disclosing that means that they really can't come back and claim against you for it because you told them about it. But if you stick your head in the sand, as Derek said, or you think, oh, that they're not going to worry about that, uh, that's how you can lead yourself into some problems. And that also, because ordinarily, if you stick your head in the sand and don't disclose it, they're going to find it anyway. And then they're going to, that's where the retrade comes. If you disclose it, then your very your chances of a retrade on that are much lower. No doubt, disclosure up front is always the best policy. I mean, no doubt, like a, a billion percent of the time. Quickly here, thirty seconds. 
Anything more with uh, with reps and warranties or non-compete, non-solicits? The only thing I have on reps and warranties, because they, they mirror the schedules, is read them. Really read them. Ask questions to people if you don't understand them. They are your greatest source of exposure in the event that something's wrong. That's why we work really hard to make sure they're right. So just read them. What, give us one example. Give us one example of a rep and warranty. Assets is the easiest one. It's the one that's the most prevalent in terms of potential disputes. So the fryers, the parking lot, the roof, you know, knowing the condition of the assets. And so there's going to be a representation that says the assets are in such and such condition. If there are exceptions to that, you need to know. It's usually going to be a parking lot or something like that, especially if you've got a triple net, you're responsible for everything. All of a sudden, you got somebody coming back saying, we've got this laundry list of things we need to discuss. The grease traps are all collecting and they're, they're dysfunctional. The seller doesn't disclose that they're all broken and bubbling over. The deal is sold. The buyer hops in there. And then all of a sudden, wham, they've got 10 grease traps that they've got to spend 50 grand to store to jackhammer them out and run new piping. That is, that is the biggest source of post-closing claims, this condition. Okay. And then they'll say, whoa, I didn't know this. You didn't disclose this. You know, there's a half million dollars. And then we get into the other legal parts of the contract and say, well, what percentage am I responsible for and for how long? And those are some of the elements that are built into these agreements. Uh, okay. What about post-closing guarantees? Go ahead. Yeah, we'll need to move a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think we got a lot here. guarantee. In terms of, I'm just going to, because we only have a few minutes left. And we've got quite a bit left on this this sheet, but just running through some of the other APA things, you'll typically have to agree to a purchase price allocation. Some buyers will try to push that to a pre-closing item. My personal opinion is one, it's not necessary. And two, I wouldn't recommend it. it takes any leverage a seller could ever possibly have out of the equation. You can of course agree to disagree with the IRS and run the risk of an audit. As long as you agree, you're probably not gonna get audited. But there's really no basis, in my opinion, after the deals that I've done and, and pushing that to pre-closing. But it's been a request that we've seen recently. Cost splitting. Buyers and sellers are increasingly splitting 50-50 a lot of these costs. You know, in the old days, the surveys and transfer fees and environmentals and all that good stuff, usually the buyer paid it. But like Rick said earlier, do you want three to four times EBITDA and have the buyer pay those expenses? Or do you want six times EBITDA and split them? Obviously, the answer is the latter. So we're increasingly seeing the cost split more evenly throughout the deal rather than, than burdened on the buyer as much like it used to be. Title company, pick one that knows the industry. Just because some title company ran title on a location 10 years ago, that's not a reason to use that company. Use one that knows the industry. I'll just plug in a Fidelity out of Phoenix, Kelly Voss's firm. They do great. We've worked with them on probably 50 deals now. Never any issues. I feel like when I when I work with new title companies that I don't know, it seems to always go poorly. And 90% of the time, use one that knows the industry. Don't use a little regional one. So you don't want to have to train a title company to close a deal. Because when you're, these are different than a lot of other deals we do. Yeah, good, good. About transaction timeline, let's talk about that quickly. Thirty seconds. What? What? You know, what we do you take got? six to eight weeks to fully prep and market a deal. You know, APA negotiations historically took thirty days. 
that's almost the low end now. I've done some deals three months and that there's no need no need for that. When you start with a fair document, it takes 30 days. When you start with a one-sided document, it takes two to three months. Start with a fair document because time kills all deals. You're going to spend more money. You're not going to get any better of a result. And you're going to piss the other side off. So take 30 days. Franchise or approval depends on the franchisor. I've seen as little as one day. I've seen it as much as like 150 days. Average is probably 90 and it's not getting any shorter. So uh, 90 to 120 days post APA is average. And that you can do the diligence within the time frame of the franchise or approving the deal. Usually the longest lead time is just franchise or letting you close. So is it true that I've been hearing you guys talking about the but the seller guaranteeing the royalties and advertising fees uh, post closing? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so I'm just, I'm buying a hundred Taco Bell or whatever the brand is. Let's just say a hundred, you know, Subway shops or whatever. And I'm a and the seller's got a guarantee that I'll pay the royalties post closing. Yeah, that that goes back to a point. Uh, so people really need to understand their franchise documents. I've had a number of clients. We get to the closing table, they get the transfer documents from the franchisor, and there's a statement in there that the selling party is guaranteeing the payments due to the franchisor by the buyer for a period of time, year, two years, whatever. And people go, what the? Yeah. And then I open up their franchise agreement and point it to the section that that, that applies to. It's just knowing your your documents, and that can go from franchise agreements, market build out agreements, relationship agreements. Knowing what you're signing becomes important. That way, you're not shocked because you're not getting out of it. By the way, I mean it's a big point. If you're listening here, listen up a little harder. You're gonna get some. If you don't know this, you're gonna get surprised. You're gonna have to likely guarantee the buyer's royalties for a part of time. So therefore, we'll listen to Unbridled when you have three buyers to choose from, and we have experience with a couple of them. And you, you know what I mean? That's why you just don't pick the highest price and say, well, let's go have fun and we're going to get a big number. You you got to protect your backside on these deals. And that's a, it's a huge component of all this stuff. Okay. Franchise approval, legal considerations. Uh, Derek, you probably got a couple of things to say that you can shoot off kind of quickly. What do you think? The biggest one for me is when you're getting into a brand, know what that non-compete is going to be. Generally speaking, and it's going to be flexible. I'll just use Yum as an example. And there's always exceptions. But if you're buying a Yum brand, you might have to sign a non-compete outside of Yum. So if you want to go buy Pizza Hut, but you have it in your back pocket that you want to go buy Popeyes, you might not be able to do that. So you should know in advance if you're a buyer what that non-compete is going to apply to and get it get it as honed in as possible. If you're a financial buyer, you know, you're these brands are, are pushing relation, they're calling them generally relationship agreements with a ton of terms. It'll include that non-compete provision, but they're extremely tough to negotiate if you can negotiate at all and you can negotiate a little bit, but they're not very flexible on these things. So knowing what is going to be in that relationship agreement is critical pretty much is what it what it sounds like. It dictates your entire relationship with the specific brand, potentially the conglomerate, Yum as well. So that's really a buyer consideration. As a seller, you want to make sure the buyer is willing to agree to those terms. Because if you get into a deal and the buyer can't agree to that relationship agreement, guess what? The deal dies and you got to go back to market. And you spent um, 50 grand trying to get the deal to that point and then it falls apart. So that's a really important kind of, you know, consideration. That the relationship agreements cratered and we couldn't get the deal done. 
Like for one example might be financial buyer. The brand is maybe not allowing financial buyers to not have a personal guarantee in the relationship agreement. Okay. That might be one. And then the financial buyer sees that and they're like, no, I'm out. You know, you know what I mean? Something like that might be an example. What else we got? Okay. Due diligence. Anything else you guys might say? How about this? Let's skip to the last question. Unless you guys got a comment on due diligence, let's skip to the last question. It was what can speed up or slow down a transaction? The uh, biggest one is the APA, the franchise or diligence not being started on time. Generally speaking, we're not seeing the banks slow down deals. They're, they're pretty good about speed and they can get their stuff done through the diligence process. But I think franchise or and the purchase agreement are the two biggest ones. And, and sometimes landlords. Landlords. It's not as prevalent recently. It was more prevalent years ago. Like we've had some instances where landlords quite literally held up a deal. We had a landlord that said he was going to sign documents and then he died. That that went into probate before we got it signed. Get the surveys done, get the title work done, get the schedules done, accelerate the schedules to the beginning of the purchase agreement, not the end. Communicate quickly and regularly with your advisor or by yourself to the franchisor because that always slows and delays things. And make sure your communication is weekly to the franchisor because they hire and fire each other all the time. And and there's lots of people that touch these deals. So I want to just thank everyone who's listening. Thank you so much for joining today. I think it was a really good discussion. Legal stuff we joke about is never fun, is it? It's kind of, it kind of glosses over and you're like, ah, but you know, this is one of these webinars and podcasts that you just save. And then you like dial it back up. You know what I mean? When the time comes. So hopefully it's been good information. Tom's an excellent guy, does a great job. As you can tell, Derek knows a lot of this stuff too. Please listen on the next podcast and uh, we'll, we'll have some good material. And let's hope that this M&A market kind of starts picking up in the back half of the year. So thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. And thanks, guys, very much. Thanks, everyone. You'll be good. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.